Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 45 for the month of November 2020. Thanks again to all of you who have subscribed to the newsletter. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet, but maybe something one day. But at least for now, you will get notifications in your email box about new episodes that are released. As always, if you have articles you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com or tweet me at gi underscore pearls. Thanks again, and let's crack open those journals, shall we? We'll start off with something kind of interesting. When you get up into the mountains, very high, you get acute mountain sickness if you ascend too rapidly. I felt it once when my friend Dave took me on a hike in Colorado, the day I arrived from New York City. It was mild, but I felt it. Generally, symptoms include a lot of GI issues, including nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and anorexia. This next paper is very exciting because these folks from Switzerland, of course, it had to be Switzerland, they actually did endoscopy on patients with high-altitude acute mountain sickness to see what potentially could be causing it. They did endoscopy on about 20 patients and found that the frequency of endoscopic lesions, meaning gastropathy or gastric and duodenal ulcers, increased from 12% at baseline to 26% on day 2 to 60% on day 4. Ulcers at baselines were zero, and on day four, 22% of their acute mountain sickness patients had ulcers. This was done at a center that actually studies all sorts of high-altitude things called Capana Regina Margarita High Altitude Laboratory in the Alps at 4,559 meters. I googled it, and the views sure look amazing from up there. Anyhow, they also did some molecular analyses, and they showed that hypoxia causes direct injury to the stomach lining causing the mountain sickness symptoms. Another proposal they had was that patients with IBD who go up in the mountains can trigger an IBD flare due to hypoxia. Interesting stuff. I sure will be following up on the research from this group. This next one is going to be a quick one, since it is a meta-analysis. Many times when a person with lower GI bleeding comes to the hospital overnight, and many times we do these procedures in the morning, maybe with some prep looking for diverticular bleed or something, Question always was, do you really need to scope these patients right away, or is it okay to wait? Many studies said it was okay to wait. One of the better studies were from Neil Singupta, and we reviewed that one before. So here comes the meta-analysis. And by the way, if you want to listen to the Singupta paper, go to episode 33 in the archives. Let's talk about this meta-analysis quickly. It included four randomized trials, and guess what? No decrease in further bleeding. No difference in mortality either you are also not more likely to find stuff to intervene upon. So more and more evidence is accumulating that early endoscopy is not always better. And it's always welcome news for all those fellows who get those 2 a.m. phone calls to come in and scope the patients. Doing colonoscopies in patients of advanced age is sometimes challenging, mostly because of the number of comorbidities that people pick up as they get older. This next paper looks at adverse events after inpatient colonoscopy in octogenarians. National Inpatient Sample Database was used to extract data. They cross-sectionally looked at colonoscopies. Now, I must say this was a while back, but not much has changed. This is data from 1998 to 2013. They looked at thousands of colonoscopies and stratified them by age and looked at risk factors for perforation and mortality. The ones popped up for perforation were female gender, white race, ischemic colitis, intestinal obstruction, and need for colon biopsy. These were independent risk factors for colonic perforation. 
In the end, this study suggests that the age is more than just a number, and I think this may be true, but one variable that makes me question this is race. Being white, you are more likely to have a perforation, which makes me question how clean this data is, meaning that if your patient has a lot of comorbidities, and if you're doing a procedure, you're more likely to perf. Another interesting point was that increase in age, diverticular bleeding, comorbidity, and polypectomy did not increase the risk for perforation, which just kind of goes along with what I'm saying. As far as mortality is concerned, risk factors for that were male sex, increasing age, which makes me think that there's no way that mortality was linked to colonoscopy itself, since the risk factors for death were the opposite of perforation. Overall, I think this is a very hard to control for a billion different variables for inpatient based on age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have abdominal surgeries, accumulated a few atherosclerotic vessels, or even more importantly, have undiagnosed disease that nobody knows about. Maybe you've got a huge adrenal tumor or something like that, or even a AAA or other factors that increase your mortality. Age-based studies are very hard to do. Conclusion of the paper reads very ominous, quote, we have shown that complications after colonoscopy among actogenarians who are in patients is relatively high. We demonstrate that adverse events after colonoscopy are independently associated with increased risk of mortality. As such, it is essential to evaluate the risk versus benefit of colonoscopy, especially in octogenarians, at higher risk of adverse events. End quote. But the discussion reads very differently. Quote, we observed an overall GI adverse event rate of 20 per 1,000 colonoscopies, which suggests that colonoscopy is relatively safe in octogenarians. End quote. I think we should be cautious of doing colonoscopies on older patients, but not too cautious that we don't do them, because many times we actually are able to help. This next paper is titled Comparative Efficacy of Drugs for the Treatment of Chronic Constipation, and it's published in Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology. When it comes to IBS constipation subtype, it seems that we have many new options that came out in the last decade. You know, the drugs with the biggest banners at our society meetings like lubiprostone, your procalopride, lunaclotide, etc. But how effective are these comparatively speaking? Those type of studies, of course, will never be done. But if you take a simple measurement, say daily bowel movements, forget about pain, forget about bloating, forget about questionnaires, scores, just hard data, number of bowel movements, how good are these drugs? And this is the premise behind this paper, which compared these drugs, and it's a clever one. So what they did was look at the randomized trials available and build a model. They subtracted out the placebo effect, and then they looked at number of bowel movements deviation from baseline. I love this line from the discussion. Quote, For patients who failed to achieve symptomatic relief despite increasing daily exercise and consuming high-fiber diet, the use of pharmacotherapy is the next possible treatment option. End quote. So simple, so true. This study found that bisacodyl had the highest effect on increasing bowel movements and was four times more effective than placanotide. Now, of course, there are different effects on other parameters other than just number of bowel movements. There is pain, there is discomfort, there's other stuff like Rome criteria for constipation. But if you just go by frequency of bowel movements, it appears that there is a clear winner here. One caveat here is the duration of treatment, meaning we don't know the long-term effects of these drugs compared to each other which ones you develop tolerance to, and which ones not. So this is a short-term efficacy study only. I'm not going to go through all eight drugs that they put in the study, but suffice it to say that all fall somewhere between placanotide and bisacodyl in terms of efficacy. Again, bisacodyl being most efficacious. 
I will probably post a figure of the study on Twitter at some point though. So follow me on Twitter if you haven't already at GI underscore pearls. So Elliot Tapper tagged me on Twitter regarding this paper. Thanks Elliot, now I have to read this paper. I even printed out 39 double spaced pages of it so I don't miss anything. But it turns out to be a very good paper. Title is 2 versus 1 forward view examination of right colon on adenoma detection, an international multicenter randomized trial. And it is published in CGH. The concept is as follows. Basically, you reach the cecum, then you go out up to hepatic flexure looking for polyps. Then you go again to the cecum for a second look and does looking again in the right colon, so-called second forward view. Does that improve adenoma detection rate? To answer this question, they did an international multicenter randomized trial comparing single view versus double view in the right colon and measured adenoma detection. Simple enough. Now, for this study to be valid, certain things need to be set prior. One, you need to make sure that the endoscopists are good, meaning that they already met the standard for ADR and other quality indicators. Here, the baseline ADR was very high, which is good, so not a problem. Two, you need to detect a measurable difference in ADR, meaning it has to be significant. Three, it has to be clinically significant, not just statistically significant, meaning it has to translate into a meaningful change in what you do in patients. Maybe you find more adenomas and recommend shorter intervals. Maybe you find more serrated polyps and diagnose patients with serrated polyposis syndrome or something like that. So let's see how folks did in this study. So here they randomized a thousand patients to one look versus two looks in the right colon. These were screening or surveillance exams. The study claims to be blinded, but obviously you can't blind the investigator to the very thing you're actually doing which is second look in the ascending colon, but at least a patient allocation was blinded and you wouldn't know that you were going to do a second look or not. So it's not so bad. 45 endoscopies were involved in the study, by the way. So the findings, right colon ADR went up from 21% up to 27%, which sounds amazing. Whole colon ADR did not change much. It went up a little bit, but this was not significant, which was about 45% or so, by the way, which is very, very good. And this is another important point. For some reason, the authors chose to ignore the differences in serrated polyps, villus, tubulovillus polyps, and adenomas, and just bunched them all together. I think this was done to just get some power in this paper. Meaning that ADR in the right colon wasn't true ADR, it was more of a polyp detection rate, where they combined hyperplastic polyps, serrated polyps, adenomas, etc., and reported that as ADR, which seems a bit unfair. This brings up a point of withdrawal time, much longer for obvious reasons when you look in the right colon again, exactly a minute and a half longer on average. So results overall show that there was a 5% increase in the polyp detection in the right colon because you spend a minute and a half longer looking. Now, here we're obviously improving a surrogate, meaning ADR. Are we really doing a patient any favors? Let's look at the overall change in surveillance recommendations based on additional findings. We expect to find that second look is worth its time meaning that you would have a significant change in how many patients come back sooner for another colonoscopy. We change their recommendations for come back in 10 years to come back in 7 years or 5 years or even 3 years or maybe even next year because you found more polyps. Let's look at the data. This is table 5 for those of you still paying attention. Based on the US guidelines, only 3% of patients changed the interval, meaning shorter the interval. If you're using the British guidelines, the number was 1% of patients changed the interval. And if you're using the European guidelines, 0.8%. So second look made a difference in less than 1% of patients there. 
one more thing. If you really think of colonoscopy as a limited resource, we keep complaining how it's a limited resource, right? It costs a lot of money. And if each colonoscopy is longer by a minute and a half due to second look, potentially it's less colonoscopies that a doc is able to do each day. So how about this? Is there a cost-effectiveness analysis that can be done? Maybe consider colonoscopy per minute cost, which should be pretty high. And if only less than 3% of the time it matters to patients, I bet it will no longer be cost-effective either. But this was not done. Still an interesting question to ask. So here are my seven points of what I think of this study. No overall adenoma detection rate increase, at least not statistically significant one. Two, ADR increase in the right colon was not real, is more PDR or polyp detection rate. Three, much longer withdrawal time, 50% more time spent in the right colon. And I suspect most of the difference here is driven by the withdrawal time. You can call it second look. Why not just slow down the first look? Put on a blue hat once you reach the cecum and start singing a song that lasts a minute and a half longer than your usual withdrawal time in the right colon. It's much more of a gimmick than anything else, but it's a good gimmick, meaning you don't have to buy an extra device. Four, so the effect size was quite small, and all polyps that were found on the second look were less than 10 millimeters, none with high-grade dysplasia. No additional cancers were found either. Five, the effect was only evident, by the way, in patients who already had other polyps found. Those without polyps, there was zero effect. Six, very few, if any, patient recommendations were changed in the second look. Remember, less than 3% of the patients had their intervals changed. Seven, so why this paper being touted as the definitive proof of worth of the second look? I am not so sure. One thing I want to say is that a big credit to the authors. Second look doesn't require a fancy gadget. It doesn't require extra training. There's no proprietary equipment that needs to be purchased. And that's not small potatoes either. Here's my conclusion. Okay, this is a good paper. I really do think that. But I really think that it shows that second look in the right colon is more of a gimmick. But it's an important gimmick. If you find a polyp in the right colon on the first look, it's probably worth your time to look again to find more polyps. But I think it still remains to be seen if second look will make a clinically meaningful difference for patients. That's it. Intermittent fasting is back in the news. This article published in JAMA is titled Effects of Time-Restricted Eating on Weight Loss and Other Metabolic Parameters in Women and Men with Overweight and Obesity. The idea was that based on a very good mouse study where mice were restricted as to when they could eat, meaning they had a long period of fast each day and ended up being much leaner and healthier than mice that were not restricted. So will this work in humans? Let's take a look. This was a 12-week randomized trial of patients with BMI of 27 to 43. Patients were randomized to eating anything from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. and then no food at all from 8 p.m. till 12 p.m. And the other group could eat whenever they wanted, three standard meals. So how much weight did not eating from 8 p.m. to noon the next day make you lose? Basically, does skipping breakfast and not eating dinner too late make any difference? The intermittent fasting group did lose weight, but not much more than the control group. Based on this very good study, intermittent fasting did not result in weight loss when compared to eating three meals a day. Also, there was no significant difference in in any of the relevant metabolic markers like lipids, glucose, insulin. Most important question that I always pose to the fans of intermittent fasting, is there something magical about not eating for 12 hours or is it just the calories that are less that you eat over 24 hours? And proponents swear by the fact that the calories are the same, which of course would mean that they won't lose any more weight because, and this is a quote from this study, 
although we did not measure caloric intake, mathematical modeling of changes in energy intake suggests that the calorie intake did not significantly differ between the groups. So calories still reign supreme. One more thing I wanted to add, Ethan Weiss from UCSF Cardiology, the senior author on this study, who actually did intermittent fasting himself for several years, stopped doing it after he saw the results of the study. Now that's having courage of your convictions. And if you want to read about this paper more, you can actually follow Ethan Weiss on Twitter and see his detailed tutorial on this paper, which was pretty good. Eosinophilic gastritis and duodenitis are pretty rare but they are very hard to treat. Many patients have recurrent nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and weight loss. It's related to eosinophilic esophagitis only in one area, meaning that if you have eosinophilic gastritis or duodenitis, sometimes you have esophagus involved too, but not the other way around. There really isn't any good treatment for these disorders other than steroids and food elimination diets. This next paper from the England Journal is a phase two study of a new drug option, Siglec 8 is a receptor on mature eosinophils and mast cells, and this is a monoclonal antibody against this molecule, which reduces mast cell activation, degranulation, and recruitment of eosinophils. Well, how well does it work for this disease? And obviously you diagnose this disease with biopsies of the small bowel and the stomach, and you find lots of eosinophils. And in this paper, eosinophil counts when using the Siglec 8 antibody went down in the GI tract by 86%, with over 60% of patients responding to the treatment. Most common side effects were infusion reaction, though. Thankfully, most were minor and treated with steroids. And this was a very small study, about 20 patients in each arm. The very fact that many of these patients had an infusion reaction, about 60% of patients, again, is kind of a caveat of this study, because once the patients got their infusion reaction, they actually got steroids to treat this. Overall, this seems very promising, especially in a field where there are no good treatment options other than steroids. It remains to be seen how much this infusion is actually going to cost and how much improvement in symptoms patients will actually going to get over steroids or diet elimination. E-clinical medicine, how often do you peruse that journal, huh? A better question is how often do you see patients that have both constipation and fecal incontinence? The answer to that is should be very often. We do anorectal manometry in our clinic, so this is not news to me, but apparently there are many docs who are not aware. This paper looked at coexistence of incontinence and constipation in over 4,000 patients who showed up to their clinic for anorectal physiology testing. For those of you who don't do this, this includes anorectal manometry, all the fancy pressure measurements, endoanal ultrasound, and rectal sensory testing. Here they also did SITS marker study and defecography in many of these patients. This was published in eClinical Medicine, by the way, for those of you who are wondering why I mentioned this in the beginning. And this is a very informative study. For one thing, over 40% of patients referred for this testing had both Rome 4 fecal incontinence and constipation that was self-reported. Most importantly, when patients were referred, over 86% of the time the referring doc was not aware of the overlap in their own patients. So what can we learn about physiology or patient characteristics here? Somewhat not surprising, proportionally more patients with constipation had hyposensitive rectum and more patients with incontinence had hypersensitive rectum. And the patients with overlap had more likely to have anal sphincter dysfunction and significant structural abnormality on defecography. And overall, five out of six patients with coexistence of incontinence and constipation were women, more with pelvic floor or rectal surgery, 
and more commonly were taking opioids or antidepressants. And here's the conclusion. Quote, lack of recognition of coexistence of fecal incontinence and constipation is at the very least an educational issue and one that may have important treatment and research implications in the era of stratified medicine. If a further iteration of Rome is undertaken, our finding could invite recognition of this overlap in a manner that Rome 4 has done for IBSC and functional constipation. End quote. I think this is reasonable and most GI docs I interact with were aware of the overlap and always ask the right questions, but according to the study, things get missed all the time. So be aware that if your patient has constipation, they may have fecal incontinence as well, and vice versa, especially if they're women and had surgeries to the pelvis and are on opioids or antidepressants. How many of you out there do chromoendoscopy for patients with IBD in hopes of finding dysplasia early? This is a very hot topic, and there are those who swear by it, and there are those who don't believe it does anything. So the idea behind spraying a dye is to highlight areas that potentially would be more beneficial to biopsy. None of this has been proven, of course, but some experts really swear by this stuff, and, uh, you know, it's hard to ignore when you find good amount of dysplasia to actually help a patient. Let's look at the current evidence behind this practice. Joseph Furstein from Bethesville Deaconess and his group did a meta-analysis looking at virtual chromoendoscopy versus dye spraying. Included were 11 randomized clinical trials for a total of 1,000 patients. There were some different comparisons in some of these trials, though. So it is a bit of a mixed bag of apples and oranges. But nonetheless, it's all fruit. For example, seven trials compared virtual chromoendoscopy, your NBI, your iScan, and your Fuji Vice versus dye spraying. So it's a bunch of different technologies. In the end, no statistical difference was found, and if you look at the distribution of which way the study swayed, the study that used Fuji equipment favored dye spraying the most, which to me means if there is ever a winner in this fight, we would likely to have compared each kind of virtual chromoendoscopy to dye spraying. Or maybe Fuji high def is by itself is just so bad that spraying a dye is helpful no matter what kind of endoscopy you're doing. Who knows? Few trials compared chromo versus white light, and interesting, the white light was superior to virtual chromo in some studies. Now, how does all this affect procedure time? Virtual chromo was about seven minutes shorter compared to dye spraying. Here's what the authors have concluded, quote, at this time, the ideal technique to screen for CRC in IBD remains elusive, end quote. I couldn't agree more. I don't do dye-based endoscopy myself, but I can't say that I don't think it does anything because when I'm really worried about dysplasia based on white light or when biopsy results or something like that, I do refer my patients to a colleague who does chromoendoscopy just to look at this thing from a different perspective. I think expertise plays a tremendous role whether you use virtual dye or chromo-based endoscopy, meaning that if you're good with one tool, you will outperform the other two, but it's whatever you're more comfortable with in the end. Well, that is all for now. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. If you want me to do more podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes and help spread the word about the podcast to others. It does really motivate me to do more of this stuff for you, so keep that in mind. If you have articles you want me to read, send them to infogipearls.com and follow me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Thanks again. Bye-bye.